0: Have any of you ever uh, had to write a proposal or, or write a paper that had kind of limitations on it? You know, you have to get to, you have to satisfy these requirements for this and it has to be in, you know, roughly this number of pages and, and things like that. Have you ever, ever done that? I, um, I write a lot of proposals, fairly long ones, for uh, work. and. Um, one of the challenges that I see made over and over again is, uh, you know, we get a like a statement of work or something from the government, a list of requirements, and uh, people generally fall into this, what I call kind of uh, either machine gun or shotgun responses to it. They take that requirement, they cut it out, they're like, oh yeah, we can absolutely do this requirement, and, and here's, you know, here's why. And the why is usually pretty skinny and filled with words that you know, excellence and Experienced and superlative, and blah blah blah. Right. And, and it has no context and it sounds ridiculous. And and, and so I always basically criticize those people, uh, hopefully in productive ways, but uh, and say, hey, look, you know, somebody that's going to read this is looking for you to create a concept in their mind of success or failure, or viability or the lack of viability of your proposal. And to do that, it has to tell a story. You have to have a narrative, right? And it cannot be just, we're excellent at this, we're excellent at this, we're excellent at this. I don't know who wrote the requirements. And it may be the guy that is going to review your proposal, guy or woman. That reads your proposal, but they still want the narrative. They're no more pleased with their shotgun requirements than they will be if you spit them back at them. And uh, so tell a story. And then I get stuck with that oh well if you know so much why don't you help us or why don't you tee up the story for us Scott so that happens to me a lot and I really struggle with how much of my page count is required to set up the narrative right like how do I get to the place where the rest of my short to the point satisfy the requirements type statements are in the context of this overall narrative that really sells it to the customer you say, what's the point of that? The point of that is if you think about the efficiency of the scriptures, they're tremendous. They are packed. Like, look, look at what has been written about the scriptures. They are packed with information. They are packed with proposition. They are packed with truth and meaning and application. Volumes packed with it, right? But they they set it up and they tell it in such a way that that narrative is rarely lost. I'm not going to say it's never lost. Sometimes it's hard, particularly as it gets translated through different languages and pulled out of context because we don't know the original context in some places, or we don't know it the way you would if you were there. But how amazing is it that the Scriptures constantly provide that narrative? How does this fit in what the Lord is trying to accomplish? How does it magnify not only this one principle in this one way or, or whatever, sometimes it's myriad, but how it does those things but still never lose the overall narrative. And it's something I'm concerned about every time I stand up to teach. I stand up to teach a particular set of verses, it's a particular look, it's a particular requirement, if you will, if I map that onto my previous metaphor, right? And I'm always concerned that you're going to miss, or that I'll miss in how I teach it, how it fits into those overall narratives. And so I I say that to say, I'm going to go back and we're going to talk about tithing and we're going to look at some specifics, some, some details, some truths, some propositions, but please don't miss the narrative here. The Lord is calling people who have who are going through a diligent in some cases, diligent means lots of activity. Not necessarily uh, heartfelt or earnest. They're going through a diligent exercise of religion, and they have an absence of affection for the Lord. Their religion is dead. Right? And that's why the one author calls this an autopsy of dead religion. What, what kills religion? And this is one of the roots of the death of religion, and it's insufficient giving. Just to review the disputation form real quick, the Lord has said, you have continually turned away from my commands. We're in Malachi 3. Verses 6 through 12. You have continually turned away from my commands for generations and not kept them. And then he says, return to me. And so we know that we have departed from him. We have abandoned God in the exercise of our religion. And he said, you know, the, the question is, well, how... How have we abandoned you? And he says, you've robbed me. And what are you talking about? How have we robbed you? Will you keep from God that which belongs to him in simple, physical obedience? And I'm going to come back and build on that a little bit. If you've been in other Sunday I don't know if I've said it in here, but in other, I guess we call them growing disciples. I still call it Sunday school. Um, If you've been in other classes with me, I've said repeatedly, I dislike, I think I've actually said I hate um, in the past, but for purposes of not wanting to distract you with uh, confrontational speech, I'll say I dislike the word spiritual, mostly because I never know what people mean when they say it. Um, I would prefer we use a Greek word for it, because at least then I would know what you meant. Um, Spirit being wind. Right when we're talking about him or uh, the things of him. But when we say spiritual, we often mean not physical, Um, not wrapped in flesh, not uh, experiential, or able to be experienced by the five senses. And I reject that. I reject everything about that word in the context of my confession of Christ. There is nothing about our relationship with Christ that is not fundamentally physical. Now, in fact, it's comprehensive, right? It is all of our physicality. It is all of our emotion. It is all of our intellect. It is all of our soul, whatever that word happens to mean, right? It is It is everything about us in all of our dimensions. But I reject any notion of a relationship with Christ that is not first and foremost Utterly physical. And in this particular call, he just says, "You, I could evidence how you have departed from me by simple, physical obedience. And I don't need to go all the way to the root. I don't think he's making a root cause argument here in tithing. I think he's simply saying it's easy enough for me to evidence how you have departed from me simply by the way you adhere to the tax that I told you you must pay. It's very simple. And, and, and I read them to you, or at least introduced them. I can't remember how far we got into them last week. I won't go into them too much this week. But the four taxations of the Jewish nation for the provision of the church, the church's people, and the impoverished of God's nation, if you will, you know Israel. right? And then above and beyond, the Thanksgiving one as well. Because you do not do those things and they're so easy to just, just obey what I told you to do, then I can evidence your utter departure from the Lord, your abandonment of the Lord. Now, that call fits well for us, doesn't it? I thought of your wife's question last week. I've been thinking about it all week, actually. It was a great question. It's a, a Perceptive question. It's a piercing question. If you don't remember, she talked about, uh, and I don't remember her exact words, but she basically was like, you know, in a wonderful way, right? I, no criticism here at all. You know, Scott, help me with God's sovereignty in election and the grace that's there and the effort of men in obedience and, and, the, and the extreme effort of men in obedience. And my response probably seemed glib. I, I'm afraid that it seemed glib, I guess, which is why I've been thinking about it all week. And I said, I feel no need to reconcile those two things because they're in Scripture. And any handling I do of them in order to reconcile them will inevitably lead to diminishing one or both of them. And I thought of several of you that I've had conversations with in class Um Previously, I was thinking about it even when I responded, I thought, oh, I wonder how that person's going to respond, or I wonder how that person's going to respond based on previous conversation that I had, hoping to avoid offending you, but also not willing to retreat from what I said point of me bringing that up is to say that I'm concerned as I come back to this topic we're going to get to this place where we just go, that's, that's too legalistic. There's, there's too much of me in that, Scott, and I'm too uncomfortable with it. That's too transactional. I, I apologize for that. But not my words. Right? I
1: wonder, um, you mentioned last week that you know, you struggle with sometimes seeing this as very transactional. And I think that sometimes we look at talks of tithing in the Bible as very transactional because it's involving money Mm -hmm. and other similar types of scenarios, you know, where God says, you know, if you do this, I will do this. That doesn't involve money. We don't often have the same sort of transactional relationship to her. We don't seem to see it in that same light. So i It's just something I was thinking about last week. Like, how much of that is us as human beings being so tied to finances that we we kind of put that transactional nature in there, even though there's so many times in Scripture where God gives us that if then kind of scenario um, things involving you know heart attitude or so many other things that don't involve that, but we don't usually come out and say we feel that's transactional.
0: Yeah, let me let me. That's great. Uh, Let me springboard off of that actually a little bit just to say that I want to come back to notice that Malachi and this isn't disagreement I'm, I'm trying to actually amplify what you said I'm excited I'm about where you took the conversation notice that Malachi does not take the issue of the heart that, that's implied here for sure right? in every one of these disputations they are issues of the heart notice what he goes to as his evidence is the simple transactional one And I think it's interesting, exactly like you said, that we don't seem to struggle with the issues of the heart, but we do struggle with the basic transaction ones. And I submit to you, it's because the issues of the heart leave us a ton of space, this is wrongly, by the way, but they leave us a ton of space to decide, well, is my heart okay? Well, my heart's okay. I love the Lord. I'm, I'm okay here. But the simple transactional ones are plainly evaluated. Did you do it? Yes or no? Like, like, show me... I mean, again, overly transactional. Show me the canceled check, for heaven's sake. Juxtaposed what you used all of your personal income. Well, I'm only looking at you because you were talking to me, by the way. <laughs> I'm not directing it to you. I don't want you to feel <laughs> persecuted. I'm just trying to be respectful and engage you because you engaged me. I'm not... Uh, challenge you individually. Uh, well, maybe I am, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> I just, I, please don't let go of that. And it's the same, I was trying to get at it with that physical versus spiritual thing, right?
1: We are fine
0: being spiritual with the Lord. We feel uncomfortable with the physical. We are fine with God's sovereign grace and eternal election, but when it comes to the obedience to the commands that he requires as evidence of our love for him and his love for us, we're very uncomfortable again. And we, we throw in ugly words like legalist. And we start talking about saved by grace alone through faith alone, which is, is there, right? I, I, don't, I don't feel any need to diminish that. That is an awesome doctrine of the Bible. It's an awesome reality. Forget about funny words. It's the, it's the awesome reality of God's redemptive work. So is the physical. So is the transactional. And they are the elementary evidences of our walk in the Lord. They are the elementary evidences of the health of our religion, if you will. The health of our relationship with Christ said differently. There is no such thing as, oh, I have this great heart for God. I'm struggling in the transactional obedience part do not taste, do not touch, spend like this, don't spend like that, all the lists that we find in the New Testament about what the behavior of Christians look like, you cannot ignore those and say you have a healthy spiritual life. It's impossible. Do not taste, do not touch, those are the elementary obediences. And as we grow in the Lord, as he trains and teaches us, What's inside the spiritual, the heart, the emotional part, becomes conformed to the image of Christ, and we are further enabled, and we are further drawn up into Christ. We are further alive in Christ, if you will. But notice, notice how that works. Check your own thinking. Do my simple Transactional, I'm just using that word because it it offends us and I want to go ahead and just deal with the offense, right? Do our simple transactional does our simple transactional obedience confirm our confession in Christ? And if the answer is no, or not not the way I think it should, not the way the Bible says it should, as I understand it. Let's work on that first.
1: I was just reminded of James, um, because it literally says pretty much what you were just saying, like, faith is here, but works are also part of that. And I kind of found it interesting that he says, just as the body without the soul is dead, so faith without works is dead. And I, w- I would probably have flipped that metaphor the other way around, given the way that we often think about faith and works. Like, the body of works is animated by the soul of faith sort of thing, but James doesn't do that at all and he's like, you can't have the profession and, and say, oh, I believe this and then, on the other hand, be leaving everyone out of that and, like, you can't say, oh, be, like, be appeased, be more be filled and then walk your, like, walk away. So it's just, it was really interesting how that kind of tied together.
0: That's excellent. James 4, by the way, is where a lot of that is although it summarized that entire argument that we just uh, had together is really summarized in James 1. For those of you that are feeling desperate about the page count, flip to page 2. We're, we're done with page 1. 37b, to return to me and I will return to you, the Zechariah passage there. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that Yahweh of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. I just want to
1: point out that that's a transaction. That return to me and I will return to you. Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah. Or the New Testament equivalent, draw near to me and I will yeah. draw near to you, right? Just
1: for, in case anybody was you know, curious, there's an example.
0: And even the draw near to God, and He will draw near to you, as James four three through eight, right about just above the halfway line on this page. But regarding Zechariah seven eleven through twelve, I want you to notice these people who had turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear, and made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and words that the Lord of Hosts had sent by His Spirit through the prophets. I want you to notice that these people had not stopped naming the name of Yahweh. And they had not stopped covering the Lord's altar with tears, Malachi 2.13. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. They had shut their hearts and they had shut their ears and they had hardened themselves. They did it according to this passage and in many others as well but that was one of the best one i love that diamond hard metaphor before there right but they didn't stop naming christ they didn't stop asking him for what they wanted regarding his favor every people that separates confession from obedience has dead religion. I I pretty much already said that, but I want to be clear with that. Every people that separates confession, right? He that would confess Christ, it says in the New Testament, shall be saved. He that would separate confession from obedience has dead religion. 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8. We'll touch on it more as we go through. God makes all grace abound to you so that you may abound to every good work. I put that in there because I was thinking of Mrs. Wilson's question last week, right? You know, about the sovereignty of God and election and my need to run hard after God, right? To apply all my effort. God's grace, Paul says, the guy that said so much about grace alone, right? Why? Why? Why is it grace alone? Why is it grace at all? Why did we need the magnification of grace in the New Testament? Why did we need Christ to secure what we could not get for ourselves through the means provided in the Old Testament? And even that, there's some debate about, right? You read Hebrews 11. How was Abraham justified? How was Moses justified? How was Sarah justified? By faith. But nonetheless, we know and quote often Paul's preeminent grace. And so I used his own words, right, from 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8. God makes all grace abound to you. Why? So that you may abound to every good work. I, I don't know if Paul meant for us to put the that kind of abounding in equal stances there but he used the same word and he used a sentence structure that is is parallel God's grace abounds to you that that grace may effect abounding in good works so he he used a grammar and he used a vocabulary That specifically equates, I think parallels is probably the safest word, equates is potentially dangerous, but parallels the abundance of God's grace in the gospel and the abundance of our obedience as a result of that grace. Please, please, This, this is just a simple plea. Do not be confused. Those whom God saved, saves. He draws to himself in a marriage relationship that is the example of every other marriage. It's not the imperfect ones that we have. It is the perfect one that he calls us to. Filled with love and service, unbelievable And that marriage is demonstrated through obedience. First simple, and I mean this, first simple transactional obedience. And then the deeper, more meaningful one maybe, less transactional one, that tends to set men and women's lives on fire for the glory of the Lord. But you cannot talk about the one without the other. You show me a a marriage, and I, I can only talk about this from a husband's perspective, or at least with the kind of earnestness that I intend to do this with, because I only know how to be a husband. I don't know anything about being a wife. You show me a marriage where the husband has lost a desire to serve his wife. And I'll show you a dead marriage. And for everybody in the room that's married, you know what that looks like. You know when you've struggled with it in your own marriages. For whatever reason, this is not a marriage class today, so I'm talking about the reasons why that happens right now. But you know it. You also know that when you have been in the flush if you will, or blush, if you will, of enjoying your marriage, that service is a delight and it's abundant. You look for ways to do it. You find ways to do it. You sacrifice other things to do it. Don't panic. Page three. Go to page three. 2 Corinthians 7, 10-11, godly grief produces a repentance. We've covered these, so that's why I'm going shortly, right? I'm trying to rebuild the momentum from last week a little bit. Um, 2 Corinthians 7, 10-11, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. This is really coming, uh, I'm working on that, return to me on page 2, right? 37B. Return to me and I will return to you. Well, what does that mean? Like He's calling us to repentance. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Where do I get this dead religion from? Right there. Right there. It produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What, what's earnestness? Earnestness is the, is the visible and conspicuous playing out of what's in the heart outwardly. You show me a person sitting in the corner idly, and I'll show you a person that lacks earnestness. You show me a person that says they're earnest that's sitting there idly, and I'll show you a liar. I was having this discussion with my younger son the other night. I was like, son, be honest or be a liar, but do not be one who talks one way and acts another it is the most disgusting thing for a man to be. You are not what you want to be. You are not what you say you are. You are what you do. And so if you have, and in this particular instance, he wasn't in huge trouble. We were having just one of those, you know, teachable moments. Stop talking. Stop telling me what you want to be. Stop telling me what you think you are. I am unconvinced and unaffected show me. Just do it. Just obey. A little note I added to your things there. mine it got a little cut off, but I think I corrected it in yours. Godly grief off to the left there. Godly grief produces earnest action, not spiritual spiritual thoughts and emotions right? I love the Lord don't judge me. You don't know how much I love the Lord in my heart. You don't, you don't know how passionate I am about the Lord. You don't know how inside. I'm like, Yep, yeah, you're right, I don't know. And I am unconvinced. And you say, well, that's not your job to be convinced about somebody else's life. Eh, actually, you're wrong. You're dead wrong. You parents should know this first and foremost. It is absolutely your job to be looking at the life of your children and to be drawing them to Christ. And that drawing is directed by what you see in their lives. And a young man, I only have sons, and a young man, probably true of women too, but I wouldn't know, I'm inexperienced.
1: And a young man
0: that says one thing and either does nothing or does something different is just a liar. And I will treat him as one and draw him toward repentance and action until he manifests that. And there's a difference between that son and the one that says something, does it fallibly, right? Does it, but not perfectly. Does it, but with, with stumbling and bruising and failure and discouragement along the way. Those You approach those two people differently, and you are supposed to approach those two people differently. God, these are a lot of talks, a lot of thought, thought, you know, a lot of talking and a lot of thoughts that seem separate from Scripture. I'm trying to make sure that you are seeing the narrative. We stepped through the verses last week. But it's just a series of verses on people not tithing if you don't put it in its overall context and you don't need me to do this for you. I don't I'm not suggesting that if, if I don't open my mouth, God's narrative isn't heard here. But we broke it up over two weeks, and I'm just not sure, right? So I'm trying to make sure that you're seeing the narrative consistent with Scripture as a whole. I am not trying to manipulate you with cute philosophies here. Or my own pet philosophies. We'd started page four. Look at all this progress we're making. We'd started last week on this excursus on tithing. I had taken you to, I, th- I think, I, th- I can't remember, but we're not going to spend much time on it this morning anyway. I had taken you to um, Old Testament tithing. There are four types of tithes, the Levitical tithe, uh, the priestly tithes with tithe, which the uh, Levites actually paid to the priests, the people paid to the leap for aid. The people paid their tithe to the Levites, the Levites paid a tithe to the priests, the people paid the tithe at the festival, and the people paid the charity tithe. The top three were required, the fourth was, um, uh, I'm not going to say it wasn't required, but the amount of it was not established. And, uh, as a matter of fact, the frequency of it was not established and it was practiced more often as, um, something that didn't happen every year, but, but more, more infrequently than that. There are only three, arguably four, but the fourth is such a foolish argument, I can't bring myself to share it with you. So, um, there are three occurrences of tithing in the New Testament and, uh, two out of the three are negative examples. Matthew 23:23 23, 23, also the parallel passage in Luke 11:42 priests that are tithing mint and dill rare herbs that would have been very expensive to be seen publicly. There's an example of tithing in the New Testament. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees men who had perfected dead religion by the way. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you tithe mint and... Did I fix that? Or is that int in yours? Mint. Okay. It says int in mine. I was like, what? Um, For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Not... Not something we want to pursue. Luke 18, 9 through 14, the Pharisee that pays taxes and the beggar that pleads mercy. He also told this parable, Christ, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Did I get were fixed or do you have W E R? Don't! My editorial skills are greatly lacking. That they were righteous and treated others with contempt. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Please let that never be said of me. And treated others with contempt. The Pharisee prayed, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then the one positive example of tithing in the New Testament comes out of an Old Testament context, and it's that Abraham pays a tithe to Melchizedek. And that verse should not be there. I I didn't intend to quote the passage uh, from Hebrews. Um Those are the only example of tithing in the New Testament. So I will make, and I told you I went ahead and checked with the elders on this before I caused a row in the church. I will make the summary statement that tithing isn't required in the New Testament. So if you walk out of this class and you say, Scott said basic financial transactional obedience is the first step to demonstrating that we have a valid relationship with Christ... You're going to have to struggle with what I just said, which is tithing is not a requirement in the New Testament. There's a verse that I thought you would have here from um, Second Corinthians
1: line. Each man should give in his heart what who, when he's decided to give in his heart, not begrudgingly and out of obligation. The gospel teacher.
0: Page five, second from the top. <laughs> 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 I did I'm going to come back and we're going to talk about using the wealth that God gave us for God's glory and how that reflects our heart but the time no no I mean it's fantastic right I love people that are alert like wait a minute that doesn't pass the sniff test what about this passage that's that's fantastic (laughs) thank you so we're not
1: compelling you just do it
0: well it it's much more exhaustive here right um I mean, so, we have learned good truths, the narrative has not fallen apart, but the simple obedience required in the New Testament, as you will find is often the case, by the way, is much more comprehensive than it was in the Old Testament. If you say there was a failing to the law, I will argue with you, many will argue differently, and I'll just tell you that, I'm I'm, I'm almost a pseudo-heretic on the law. Some would maybe argue that I'm a full-out heretic on the law. But, um, yeah, I'll argue that I wish we could go back to it. It was easier. This <laughs> love the Lord with your God, with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind in the New Testament and treat others accordingly. Man, that, that doesn't leave any room for anything. That is fully comprehensive. There is nothing more sold out, more dedicated than that. It would be easier to follow a bunch of rules. Check, 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 check. I'm good. There's no space for good. And the standard is so high I can't meet it, ever. Thank God for grace and forgiveness. What's robbing God? Taking something and keeping it from its owner is robbery. That's pretty simple, right? You just look up the definition of robbery, you're going to get something very similar to that. Taking something and keeping it from its owner is is robbery. Same definition we came up with when we were talking about it earlier in Malachi. So in the New Testament context, how are we robbing God? 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. A couple comments I want to make about that. One, if you take and keep that which is not your own, you are a robber, and your body is not your own. Now, I think some of you are mapping all sorts of complicated, interesting eloquent fascinating complicated theological thoughts onto body stop it it's just you it's you in every sense of you right it's just you it's all of you your thoughts uh One author says, talks about your skull, is that circular bone, and then he adds usually other, some sort of satirical descriptions to your brain, right? Your thoughts are encapsulated in this circular bone, and your feelings, I don't know why we do this, are probably more focused down here, but we always put them up here, maybe because it's more attractive than sticking them someplace in our intestines, which is where we most often feel things, right? But it's all inside your body. So I don't know what you think it means when the Bible talks about your body, but it just means everything you do, everything you say, everything you feel, everything you think, everything you want, everything you require, everything you need, everything you experience, that's your body. Your most real reality is confined by the boundary of your skin. And if it's not, we need to get to the doctor. All of that belongs to the Lord. Somebody said something, but I didn't hear it. Oh, Okay. Romans 12, 1 through 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And that passage goes on in a continuous theme, a continuous vein, and gets to verse 13, and it says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. At the end of this, I'm going to come back to this with some summary and try to give you some practical ways by which we obey the Lord in simple elementary ways as a result of what we read in Malachi 3 so that we do not rob God. And it's going to come back to this last verse here. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. But it's the surrender of our bodies as a living sacrifice that predicates that. We give back to God what is his. Luke 14, 33 So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What do I have more natively, more intrinsically than this? Right? It is the one possession which I expect no one to violate. Right? And we talk about violating a person's body, and I'm trying not to get ridiculous here, but it's like an ultimate desecration, isn't it? It's, it's the worst thing you could do to somebody. He that does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. It, it's a pretty extreme statement. And not different than that in Malachi, is it? There is no 10% rule in the New Testament like there was in the Old Testament. There is only all of you and all that you have in every good work for God's glory by displaying God's goodness. I'm going to say that one more time. It is not in your notes. It's in my margin, in my own handwriting. So if you want to scribble it down, let's go again. There is no 10% rule. There is only all of you and all that you have in every good work for God's glory by displaying God's goodness. Luke 14.33 was Dietrich Bonhoeffer's theme verse for the cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship is that you renounce all that you have. All that you are. And if you will not do that, you cannot be my disciple. Now, does the New Testament... Does the New Testament talk about ways that we're supposed to use all of our wealth? Right? If we can't, so map this onto Malachi, right? What's the elementary obedience? All of ourselves, surrendering all of ourselves. That, that, that's difficult. That takes learning and experience. It takes uh, the education of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It, it takes a body of uh, believers to come alongside and help us figure that out in practical ways, particularly when things are hard or costly. It's very difficult. But what's not difficult, or at least it shouldn't be for us, is to just write a check or spend some money. And so are there practical ways here that we can do this elementary obedience thing as we as we practice and learn this all of us principle? This 100% rule? And I said 10% because that's just what we say all the time, right? We, that, that's our thing, right? What do you tie? Do you tie at least 10%? I don't, I don't even know where that came from, by the way. Because in the Old Testament, it's 20% plus... So, I don't know where we got 10 from, but somebody made a rule up, kind of like a Pharisee in my mind. I don't know who actually made the rule up, so I'm going to be a little careful here. <laughs> somebody made the rule up. She's whispered, Do you know who did it?
1: Well, the, the word tithe comes from the Hebrew word for 10.
0: Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> so?
0: I don't think I knew that. Actually, I know I didn't know that. Um,
1: and James had mentioned that to me last week, so I'm not going to take credit for that. He, he had oh, heard she that to me. Too. So, when we say tithe. 10. and everyone's just like, "Okay, I get ten
0: percent." I guess, but you don't get away with a ten percent rule; you get a hundred percent rule. But there, and there's, by the way, there's more. But these are the three that, not, you know, frankly speak, uh, are spoken of most dominantly in the New Testament. Um, and they're the three that, frankly, just I shared with you last week. Right? I I write a check to the church, but it feels like a bill to me. Um, but I delight to use money, resources for these other three, and so I'm going to share them with you. There's the collection for the poor, and that's anybody that needs the money, by the way. Be careful how you, you pick poor up, right? Poor is not the guy necessarily. As a matter of fact, I'm not even sure. I think he lives an honest life, but it's not the guy between, you know, 95 and... 175 there that rolls the old lady out in the wheelchair. That, by the way, if you go by at the right time, you can see her skipping down the highway on the way to her car after she's done getting money at the intersection. So, you know, that, that's not necessarily poor. Poor are people that need it. Poor are people that have a need that is otherwise unaddressed by their own capacity. Galatians 2.10, Paul makes clear his ministry is to Gentiles and that there is a priority of remembering the poor. I mostly introduced that because it's a little bit difficult to read Paul and not see how much time he spends on collection for those that have needs, normally within the body of Christ. So these are people that are active about involving themselves. And by the way, we we live in a small world with communications mechanisms the way they are, right? You, you can have a relationship of swords with people across the world. No such thing back here. And yet these people were were conversant with the needs of others way far away. And they were not only conversant with it but they were convinced and convicted by it sufficiently so that out of their own needs they provided for the needs of others. And that is all through the Pauline corpus. So I'm not going to do that topic justice this morning, but I wanted to introduce it and lay it on your mind and just leave it to you to kind of think through the scriptures that you know where, oh yeah, all the time. The people had, for instance, committed to making a collection for the church in Jerusalem and yet at some point in time, after maybe a, about a year or so of collecting it, and I don't, I don't know that it was their fault in this particular instance, but they lacked a mechanism to convey that gift to the people in Jerusalem. And someplace along the line, their conviction had cooled. And Paul writes them this other letter, and he's like, No, no, don't, don't do that. You started so well. You demonstrated so much about the reality of your relationship with Christ, the effectiveness of his sovereign work in your hearts to share the gospel with you. You you proved so much, you demonstrated so much. Don't don't not do it. Don't at the end prove that you were like the word implanted or like the seed implanted on the stony soil that sprung up quickly and then perished, withered as soon as there was some sun. 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4, and 2 Corinthians 8, 1-15, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Notice that the context there in chapter 8 is, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. (laughs) Not not exactly an expected sentence, is it? Their abundance of joy... And their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. I take that to mean that people that understand how hard poverty pinched had such a confidence in God and such a compassion for others that they did what didn't make sense transactionally but was entirely consistent with the promises of God. You give abundantly that which I have given you, and I will open the windows of heaven before you. have a blessing You shall not be able to continue. That's always the Lord's message. You give to the Lord, and he will return an abundance which you cannot imagine. Please don't turn that into the ugliness of a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. That is not what I mean. 2 Corinthians 9, 1-15. through 15, The point is this. This is Paul's words, not mine, right? The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And I'm... Um, Skipping for the sake of time, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Don't give reluctantly or under compulsion, as though, you know, well, oh, this ten percent rule, I gotta get that out the door. It's not a ten percent rule anyway, it's a hundred percent rule. But even that is not to be reluctant or under compulsion, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, don't ever miss that word. It's a three letter word, it's so important, it's so huge. It's the hugest, actually. In all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Notice that. The ministry of this service. Are you you catching that? What is the outcome and purpose of... Of what is being done. That's that's what it means, right? When we talk about somebody's ministry, we, we mean the outcome and the purpose that is intended. Well, the outcome and the purpose of this service is not just supplying the needs of the saints, but overflowing in thanksgiving for God. The simple transactional obedience of using our wealth for God's glory in the ways that he has described in Scripture or the ways that he has burdened us with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives demonstrates the reality of our relationship with Christ. Hearts overflowing with thanksgiving. You show me a heart that's overflowing with thanksgiving for Christ and I'll show you somebody that sees Christ rightly. You show me a heart that's like my own often, by the way. You show me a heart that's struggling with that thanksgiving, and I'll show you a heart that's struggling with the truths of Christ. Who he is and what he is and what he's promised us and how much he cares for us. How much he cares for me. How real and personal Christ is in my own life. Thanksgiving is the consummation of a mind and heart In tune with the reality of Christ, maybe harmonizing with the, the reality of Christ is better. So, uses of God's money for uh, is for God's people. The collection for the poor, the minister deserves his living. First Corinthians nine one through fourteen again, and Luke ten seven. For the laborer deserves his wages. It literally says, as you know, he's speaking to his apostles, go into the city. Go into a house, and for as long as you can stay in that house, and as long as they'll feed you, stay there. Because you you deserve to be remunerated for your work and service. I'm going to make one more comment. It popped up in a conversation I was having with Angela this week. And it goes with what I said earlier about people that say one thing and do something else even if it's not contrary to what they're saying. You you are not what you want to be. You are not what you say you are. You are what you do. Have you ever noticed how rarely you see a leader pick up trash? Clean the toilet. Show up on the cleaning day at the church. Change those disgusting air filters and the HVAC units on on the roof. Show up with a Snake and clean the clock toilet. The... You say, don't they have more important things to do? I don't know, maybe. Maybe. But I find that men mostly leadership positions, right? You know I'm talking about here. I find that men that can't do the simple little service and obedience in the Lord can't can't take a few dollars and help somebody out can't take a few moments and do just simple, ordinary obedience kind of things. Right? Have a problem with the way they view themselves with the Lord. Fathers that like to delegate the the boring, bad jobs to their kids, make for bitter kids. Make for kids that grow up to think that their lives are spent in the pursuit of attaining sufficient, glory, so that they no longer have to do those bad tasks. Simple obedience. Simple obedience. Simple elementary obedience. And then the third thing that shows up in the scriptures, collection of the poor, minister deserves his living, care of family. Mark 7, 1 through 13, and Exodus twenty twelve. right, honor your mother and father. Christ condemns the Pharisees for their use of Corbin. Apparently, a a Jewish tradition or, or, um, uh, I actually didn't do a a lot of research on it, Um, but either a tradition or a, a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, for a a law that's not one of God's laws. Anyway, doesn't matter. Um, A loophole in the law that allowed God-honoring care of family meaning the money that should have been going to God-honoring care of family to flow instead into the coffers of the temple. Um, And the Lord condemned that because you should be caring for your family, your extended family in this case. There are more uses for our money in the New Testament, but these are the dominant uses. And these are not menu items that you select from. These are all normal demonstrations of obedience resulting from God's grace. So I want to, in my last few minutes, I want to come back and try to hit some summary points from this. So if you go back to page three, right at the bottom there. Are you robbing God? Are you taking something that belongs to God and keeping it for yourself? 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And Luke 14, says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. There's a footnote right below that, and it's there, to it, secular author, don't, care what he thinks or what he says, but in looking up the word that is used for offering in um, the Septuagint, um, um, in this passage in Malachi, because it wasn't a a Hebrew word for offering that I was familiar with, it wasn't one of the ones that I've previously written about. So I was looking it up, and even here, um, this author makes the statement that offerings involve setting aside a portion as a symbolic offering, and both, both uh, words that are used in this offering word group express the precedence accorded to the gods over men. Now, again, pagan author, right? So to the gods over men, he's just speaking culturally, Greek context, Roman context, whatever it is. What, what's an offering? Even this secular guy gets the point of the offering. To establish the preeminence of the one worshipped. Said differently, to establish the ownership of the one worshipped. What does your use of all that you are, but particularly in this sense the simplicity of your financial transactions, what, what do they suggest about the ownership of your life? Are you robbing God? Is your religion so dead and formalistic that God's grace is all about you and obedience is always spiritual? say, what's the point of that one? It was reflecting on the discussion that we'd had about God's sovereignty and grace and our need to obey God. The simplest thing in the world, people always ask me this, well, how do you know that you're saved? Are you running the race? I have never, have you, have any of you ever run a race? At any age, have any of you ever run a race? Come on. It's not a hard question, why? Some of you like, oh my word, I don't on. want to answer it. Yeah. Run a race, right? Have you ever been confused once the, the, the gun went off or the guy called start? Have you ever been confused about whether or not you were in the race? And hopefully what direction you were supposed to be running in? Not really, right? I mean, we make little joke videos about kids getting confused and going the other way. But that's the whole point of it. It's unusual and suggests an amazing immaturity right? that you don't even know where you're going. Simple obedience are the steps in a race, Right? How do you know how you're doing with the Lord? How are you doing in your simple obediences? Is, is your thought about finances? These are all the things I'm doing with my finances, and oh, I owe some money to the Lord. Or is, I have a job to do for the Lord. I, I have surrendered all that I have with the Lord. Lord, where are you going and what are you doing with this? short on time shucks in what ways are you bringing the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house in what ways are you battling worthless religion as james 1 26 and 27 call it religion that is all talk by the way it specifically says that all talk and no action Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to use the wealth and uh, efforts of our lives in order to meet the needs that God has given us to, to meet, right? All of me and all that I have in every good work for God's glory by displaying God's goodness. Practical consequences of this humble service right my time my efforts and any money that's associated with the need of the expenditure of those time and efforts right humble service in the church in the community it was in here in the passages i'll have to leave it to you is romans uh 12 9, uh, specifically 13 romans 9 13 but hospitality hospitality how are you doing on hospitality Small groups is a part of it. Fellowship groups in the church is a part of it. Neighbors are a part of it. Community is a part of it. If God owns all of you, how much of your life is focused on hospitality? By the way, it's costly. Angel and I were convicted by a book written by... Rosaria Butterfield, called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Read it. Matter of fact, I have a case of them. If you want it, just holler at me. I'll give you one. That's how important I think the book is. I bought a case of them to hand out. Very convicting. And you know what the first thing we discovered was? It's hard. It's painful. It's tiring. It's expensive. It's often thankless. And above all that, people are dirty. And I don't just mean unclean. I mean, they come into your life with their problems. And the next thing you know, you're not only being hospitable, you're getting sucked into their lives. And they have needs. And rarely are those needs separate from some sort of financial transaction. Now, it, it often is unrelated to finances. But there's no such thing as getting involved in somebody's needs and not having to bring your wallet along. I have never known that experience. Now, a lot of times it's 99% sweat and $1 to go with it, but it still needs a wallet. Hospitality, small groups, fellowship in church, which, by the way, we just stink at but that's not the subject of today's discussion. Community, neighbors. Know people and be known by them, and God will open to you a great ministry. Go ahead.
1: Sorry, I don't want to interrupt. Your no, no, about, go ahead. In all of the New Testament examples of giving, it always involves people and their needs, which I think is very interesting. You know, there's nothing about just, just giving to God. There's always an underlying need. And I think that just as a contemporary church, we often, like if you ask a missionary what their needs are, they will always start with prayer needs because it's like often not acceptable to start with physical needs. But that's, like, that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be. The, the needs of the church, because
0: that is the body of Christ. Missions is another way to get involved. But you can't take Oh, I'm sorry?
1: You can't take the relationship out of giving. 100 right? You can't just check a box. There's
0: always a, a person element. 100%. Missions is another way to do it, and while I encourage you to engage the missions board in this church more directly, you'd be surprised at how personal um our missions board isn't personally our missions board is invested into the lives of the missionaries um i would encourage you to actually go it yourself i've shared with you before that we support missions in this church and we have six or seven other missionaries that we have supported for over 25 years and i just read a uh, um, a journal from one of the women uh, she's married but one of the women that was 13 years old and it it just it just landed on me like a ton of bricks this week my wife forwarded it to me and it was a kind of a survey of 13 years of journal entries just snippeted into like a page and a half from this lady that she sent my wife specifically and then Angela asked if she could share it with me and she she did share it with me but amazingly impactful Not uncommon for a missionary to say, I have a desperate need. Can you send fill in the blank with a dollar value? And by the way, it always comes at the worst time. Like right after somebody sent me a bunch of tax bills. We got to stop. We got to stop. We got to stop.